0: It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, Jeff. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking about our past couple episodes. It's been very politics heavy. And um, just want to share a little parenting thing that I did this weekend. So I was working on changing the oil for our minivan. And our oldest son had been sort of, he got in trouble for something else. So he couldn't go to grandma's house. So he was sort of hanging out. But I, I took that as an opportunity to just sort of like show him how to change oil and not that I would expect him to go out there and, and, uh, unplug the drain pan and drain it and everything. But, you know, I explained like, oh, you got to run the car a little bit to warm the oil up. He got to, um, he was interested in where the, where the filter came out. He was, uh, intrigued by putting the oil back in the car and sort of how that all worked. He's like, can you, do you clean out the, the tubes inside the engine? I said, no, it's kind of, that's just the system. The oil kind of does it on its. oil going through cleans it out and on so it was a nice father-son car uh, maintenance bonding activity uh that uh, i think hopefully he got a little bit out of you know because he's trying to figure out life right now as a young eight-year-old and um you know no better place than learning how to change the oil in your car to learn about the real world as they say
0: i mean that's like that's parenting 101 right take a negative and turn it into a positive Mm -hmm. right So, your kid has done something wrong and he got punished. He wasn't able to go to grandma's house, but he turned it into quality time with dad. There's a lesson to be learned there. And if you got an eight year old that is misbehaving in any form or fashion, chances are giving them a task to do is helpful, keeping them busy so they stay out of trouble. And, you know, they got to learn things in order to be able to accomplish tasks. And, you know, right around that time, eight, you're kind of, you're just kind of getting to that like really awkward independent stage where you're like in between what you can do. You've now mastered all the tasks that you had coming out of like your toddler stage, but you're still kind of like on the bottom end of your like teenage stage. So like, it's just a tough spot to be in at eight years old. No wonder the kids getting in trouble. It's hard to be eight, man.
1: Hard to be eight. <laughs> Actually his favorite thing was the hydraulic lifts. Cause he was kind of like, this is really cool. that I can lift a car by just like pushing a lever a couple of times. So I think, you know, that was an interesting uh, he, physics lesson.
0: He had lesson. a natural tendency towards power, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, John, you know, the last few weeks we've played, uh, you know, like talking about like, what would you do as a candidate? You know, if you were running for office, because it's, it's election time, because it's Virginia and it's always election time. Um, But I was thinking, you know what really, what people really want to know, they really don't care what you're going to do when you get to Congress, John, what they really want to know is who is the candidate? Right. So like, I figured like, let's just ask some like candidate questions. Like uh, let's move to first one. Uh, John, as a candidate or as a person, I guess, what is your best quality?
1: Uh, I think so. One of the things my wife and I like to do not to flip everything, deflect, but we like to think about temperaments and things and um, understanding where, who, what your temperament is kind of helps you figure out who you are and your strengths and weaknesses. And so I'm a phlegmatic uh, melancholic. So I think a little too much sometimes, but, but the being a phlegmatic, you're, you're, you're trying to please people. And uh, I think one of my strengths is, is trying to listen to people understand their problems and successes, and then try to like help them uh, overcome those problems. And so like my day-to-day job uh, working in the IT department of a school is, it's honestly like fixing lots of little problems for people, um, and then trying to figure out what's the big issue behind something that can actually make a lot of people's lives easier and, you know, my life easier by by fixing that problem for them. So it's it's being able to listen and to learn what what's ailing someone, and then to actually you know do what I can to solve those problems, if it's possible. I uh, you know sometimes it's not, and then you just kind of you're you're part therapist for that, you know, helping someone go through it. But um, it is really trying to serve people in that respect so i don't know what, what would you say your strength is
0: um
1: you care too much right no,
0: yeah that's the classic i just care too much um i mean persuasion I'm i'm pretty good at persuading people i mean persuasion is a difficult thing to navigate as a person because you never really like want to make somebody do something but at the same time like you think it's better and you think that another person is missing a piece of information like that's kind of what i see in uh, persuasion as is just like fulfilling all of the the information dots um for the other person so they kind of see see it the same way that i see it we kind of come to the same come to an agreement um i feel like i'm pretty good at that i'm pretty relentless um you know i, I get a, an idea stuck in my head like uncapped the house and you know i will <laughs> I'll sit and I'll talk to anybody that wants to talk about it to persuade them to my side. And, uh, you know, I'd say you're pretty good at it. I mean, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Like, wh- so I'll say your best quality and cause we've known each other for about a year. I think that you kind of hit yours. About a
1: year. Point. It's been a, it's about a year and a half.
0: Is it been a year? Is it been that long That's already? Time flies when you're having fun, John. Um, so I would say like your patience and understanding, like you said, like, you are a very good listener. And then, and I can tell that because of the questions you ask me back when we talk. Right. And that makes me feel good. Cause I like to be heard when I'm speaking, you know, like I will, I say a lot of stuff, but I want people to like, ask me questions back and like, understand what I'm saying. And you're, you're not a, speaking
1: for your own health is what you're saying.
0: I, no, I'm not. I mean, maybe sometimes I am, my kids would say, or my wife might say that I am, but, uh, but that, I think, I think you're right. Patience, understanding, listening, uh, you hit it on the nail, uh, the nail on the head there.
1: Well, I will say you did persuade me about uh, uncapping the house. So I, it's there. And then we were at the Great Maine uh, this past weekend and uh, we we're talking to one of the, the bar keeps and um, he was like, yeah, yeah, Jeff, Jeff got me to understand uncapping the house. Um, and then I'm all about it now. So it's, uh, you know, I would agree that that's a strength of yours. Uh, that's very valuable in the political sphere.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good one to have if you're a candidate. <laughs> I think both of them are, because like we said, like, what is, and this kind of falls into this, uh, you know, my philosophy on communication and like people active and passive. What did we say when we were teaching our classes for representation? What did we say the two main things a representative's responsibilities are?
1: Communicating and listening. Well, so listening and communicating, I think is how we put it.
0: Informing and listening. Yeah. Listen to the citizens and inform the citizens. You're a great listener. I'm a great persuader. We're on the we're on the way to like we're a good team, <laughs> um, but we're not perfect, are we, John? Wow. So some days. What is what is your worst quality? You might have to consult with your wife to figure this one out.
1: No, yeah. So I did ask her about this, um, and I agree with what she said. It's just sort of a negative uh, self doubt. Let it let in the self doubt get in there, and you know, something doesn't go right. Um, going back to uh, being phlegmatic and, and caring very much what people say sometimes when you get negative feedback, it kind of, and then adding that melancholic aspect into it, it kind of gnaws at you and then you kind of think, well, maybe I'm not good enough for this and, and maybe I should stop this or quit this because it's just not good for me. So that's something I, um, I'm i getting better about. Uh, like I, I remember my first job, um, well, I guess many jobs I had this, but I was, it was very cautious about like talking with my boss and stuff and sort of like anything, any perceived negativity, I think would like really hit me hard. Um, and so for a while I would struggle where we're like, if I got a, a message from my boss or something like, Hey, let's talk, uh, next week at 10 AM, like for a whole week, all I could think of was like, this is going to be bad. What's the word, you know? Um, so it took me a while to break out of that and, uh, to just kind of, uh, think about the facts, you know, when someone says they want to talk with you, do you have any reason to suspect that? And I never did because I was a really great worker, um, a great employee, but um, it's just like, it's that negative self-doubt that can creep in there and really um, make it difficult to uh, finish a project. It's easy to start stuff. It's difficult to finish stuff. So getting much better at that. Um, It uh, comes up every once in a while, but uh, I'm better about uh, not letting it get to me and, and pushing through. Cause you know, like it's one of those things like once you, once you realize you're you're being silly, um, you just kind of like you can see all the other things that are the, the real facts on the ground and realize that that negativity is is usually completely unwarranted. Uh so I don't know. What do you what do you think is a problem that you struggle with?
0: Uh well, according to my wife, I was just trying to find it because I knew you were gonna you were to send it back to me. Uh what did she say? She said You
1: care too much, right? That's what it is. <laughs>
0: Uh, kind of. Uh, she said, you take everything, including feelings of... Uh, hold on. Where is so you it? Take a, what was, you told me. She said, I'm too empathetic. I, I take on everybody else's problems and feelings and absorb them. And I try to fix everything. She said, you're a fixer. Um, I, you know, I... I, so like, I get why it's a negative, right? Like I, I live it. So like, I feel it as a negative personally, the whole like absorbing other people's like feelings and stuff is difficult. I don't want to do it. It just happens. Um, the fixing thing, like, I don't know, like I like to fix things, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, yeah, not everything's my responsibility and I don't have to fix everything. And I'm trying to do better about limiting what I'm working on. Um, you know, but overall, I see that as a positive, but I get where I get where my wife's coming from with the negative thing. So, you know, it is what it is.
1: It is what it is. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, yeah, no, it can be tough if you take on too many things, and then you're not able to give everything it's appropriate to but, um, you know, like all flaws, there's, there can be some positive in there that is just you're taking it too far. All
0: right, so next question, john, of our get to know the candidates. What's your favorite part about fatherhood?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Um, It's definitely watching your kids grow. Uh, you know, and for me, this was crystallized when our oldest, Paul, was about one. We got a dog, a puppy who was about six months old. And so, you know, a puppy at six months, a boy at, at one year old. They're developmentally very similar. Uh, that they- <laughs> need to be uh, taken to, uh, to do their business and uh, they need lots of walks, lots of exercise, attention. Um, but the coolest thing about uh, that was watching my son like really grow and um, being more capable and being able to, you know, grow new skills and stuff. And like, you know, a dog can be kind of like that where you can teach him to sit and to roll over and then you, you can play fetch for forever. But like, to watch a boy, uh, you know, and and your daughters too, like really grow uh, day by day, bit by bit, um, and to sort of realize that responsibility. I I think that's a powerful thing about fatherhood and something I enjoy. And, um, you know, it gives you the reasons to um, stick, you know, try to be around when you can and to uh, correct them because you know that if you don't uh, sand off that rough edge, that um, it's going to Great on someone else later on in life, and uh, you know that's a, I really talking about failures. Like that's a failing on your part. You know you had that opportunity to to fix him um, and make him a bet, better person. And so I, I really appreciate that aspect of of um, just watching them grow, seeing them grow. I mean, like that one year old boy is now twelve years old and uh, crushing it with a tuba in middle school band, like you know things like that. So it's fun just to see that, and you know you wonder where he's gonna go. And it's not uncommon now to think about like oh what kind of career he might have. And, you know, he's got his own ideas and he's all wrong. Cause I know exactly where he's going to end up, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's things like that. It's, it's a lot of fun. And that's a real joy about being a father. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What, what do you find rewarding? I mean,
0: ob- observing the kids, watching them solve problems on their own is really enjoyable <laughs> for me um, as much of a fixer as I am, as my wife would say, I am, you know, I like to be pretty hands-off to a degree. I'm a hands-on and hands-off. I love to give my kids plenty of opportunity to solve their problems before I step in and like help them, you know, like I'll give them, if I'll give them the opportunity. Do you want help or do you not want help? You can ask me for help. You, you don't have to, you can try to figure it out on your own. Now, there always comes a point as a father where you need to step in and like guide. And like you said, sand off those rough edges. But I think there's, You know, there's just, there's freedom in creativity. There's freedom in solving your problems for yourselves. And I really want my, my kids to have that opportunity when they're young. Mm -hmm. Um, Although, you know, as they get older. uh, So I just recently had a, so my middle son is 13. He will be 14 soon. So just a couple of years older than Paul. And uh, just so you know where you're going next is my son has a girlfriend And, you know, talk about one of my favorite moments as a father is when he told me that he liked a girl and then like asked me what to do. (laughs) It sounds really silly, but it's just, it's a really special moment because you're able to give him all the information that you learned from like marrying his mom and creating him (laughs) and then kind of like help him avoid some of maybe the mistakes that you made when you were younger Give him the, you know, for me, it was like, give him the confidence that he can, like, go talk to this girl, you know, like, that was the big thing is when he brought it up. And because it took a lot of confidence to come at, tell me, you know, I'm sure that wasn't easy for him. So I wanted him to, like, understand, like, hey, this is awesome. If you can come talk to me about it, all you got to do is go talk to her about it. And once you can do those two things, like, you're pretty set, you know, just be respectful, be polite, you're going to make mistakes, ask for forgiveness. So that's mine. So that,
1: yeah, no, that's good. I mean, like, and so that's a that's a good part. What is? Did you ask what difficult part was? I think you said what's a positive part.
0: I asked you the positive. You, you, yeah. Want what's a
1: difficult play? part for you? No, I'm going to, yeah, going to turn yeah. the tables on you.
0: The difficult part of fatherhood. Um, everything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, okay, you want to see a difficult part? The boy. That's he went to a dance with the girl and they sent pictures in the group thread with the moms to, to me. And I look at this, what used to be my little boy. And he doesn't look like my little boy anymore. He just looks like this adult human being. And I barely recognize, I can barely remember what he looks like as a human being or as a little boy. That's the most difficult part of, of being a father is watching your kids transition from one stage to the next and like, this moment where you just don't even feel like you know them anymore just for a split second like it's not real it's all like you know imagine he's still the same boy he always was he just got a deeper voice he's a little bit more articulate you know he's bigger he's stronger he does all the heavy lifting at the house now you know (laughs) (laughs) but uh i would say that's probably the most difficult that and getting them to behave (laughs) let's face it
1: But that's just roughing. I mean, that's roughing off the standing off the rough edges, you know it's a it's a like process. It. um I think it's again, like you' talking about like your son being able to come to you. it's just sort of how do you make yourself available because it's difficult when you got a job and then uh, you've got other responsibilities on top of that. I mean, like um the school board's been tough on the family, I would say just being available but or away. but you know, we try to have family dinners um pretty much every night when we can. So like if I've got a, meeting, uh, that means I have to leave the house at like five. So I'll get home at like 4.30 and we'll just have a quick family dinner and and try to make that work. So it's, um, and then just sort of on one-to-ones, you know, um, not getting frustrated when uh, he's trying to ask you questions, when you're trying to listen, like your, your audio book on the way into work or something like, you know, um, being around, I think is something that, that every child wants from their parents. And I think in our day and age it's so easy to sort of, you know, park them somewhere, uh, with a TV babysitter, maybe or something and kind of do your own thing. And, um, like, that's a real challenge to like, you know, stay off your phone when you're around the kids, um, and be present for them. So I think that's something I struggle with a lot and try to work on getting better. Um, also not getting angry when they disobey and make mistakes. And, you know, um, I think that's, that's another that's the challenge. Person. It's an eternal well, struggle. That so is the eternal struggle, right? I am just, I am just human. You know.
0: <laughs> Kids are surprisingly um, frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so okay, so here we go. Here's a good question. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not really a question; it's a statement. <laughs> I'm ordering you around now, John. Um, right. Share a story from your childhood that shaped you into the man that you are today
1: uh was a lot of stories i think you could think of one um i was uh listening no i know
0: you gotta be the politician man you gotta <laughs> so I was,
1: I was listening to some other candidates video and he was talking about like oh i was i don't remember like in my high school i was working cleaning something up or another and i was like you know every politician has a story like oh i was bussing tables at age 15 and stuff and i still so we'll will say i was bussing tables at age 15 but i think <laughs> right, what young was young. what was what Was um big for me was like growing up uh when I was eight, we had a big snowstorm roll through. Um, and I think this is kind of when I like discovered the ability to like sell your time for, for money. Um, mm-hmm. so I like just went up and down the drive, the the road offered to shovel people's driveways, uh, and it made like a hundred bucks that day. And that was probably the most money I'd ever had in my life. Um, and then I went to go like uh that night, we went to I think the roads had cleared up, and so we went to Toys R Us, and I needed a bike, so we got a cool bike and i remember like our friend who was with us was like oh you got to get the shimano brakes like the shimano brakes are the, the best and uh, i gotta say those brakes they work pretty well on that bike so like <laughs> i think that was that was a big story for me growing up because it kind of um it was a tremendous amount of independence at a young age um just kind of realizing like you could um make your way in the world you just gotta you gotta ask people <clears throat> um and i'm not always the best at asking people um but you know if you have something you Again, like if you can solve someone's problem, they're willing to uh remunerate, remunerate uh, give you money for that. So, um, I think that was a, an early story in my childhood where that was big. I think going back to busing, again, like a lot of stories. Um, I got fired from Outback Steakhouse when I was in high school because I, <laughs> I like was just overcommitted. Like I had like a some kind of acapella concert in high school, and then there was like a lacrosse game, like way too many things going on. And I couldn't get someone off. So I just like, ah, whatever. I just won't show up. they won't care. And like the next week I went in kind of slunk in the back and uh, the, the manager was like, what are you doing here? Like, you don't have a job here anymore. (laughs) Um, And so that was the first time I ever got fired. And it was just like, it was a shock for me. So that was, that was good to kind of learn, like you got to be responsible. Um, And then the sort of the happy ending to that was I had a bunch of friends that worked it out back. And so after a couple of months, they sort of lobbied, for me to come back. And like, that was my only, really honestly, that was my only infraction um, was not showing up that one day. So the manager kind of like, he's like, yeah, yeah. Have him come in talk to me. And so I talked in, apologized, we made up for it. And I'm like, got, got my job back and I worked there for the rest of high school and a couple of years in college, just on a vacation. So like, I think that was a, that was sort of the tail end of that, like responsibility growing up and, um, you know, having to show up for when you say you're going to show up, it's, it's key. So I don't know. What's the story from your childhood that made you the Jeff you are today?
0: Oh man, I don't know. There's a lot of stories from childhood. A lot right? of
1: stories. Just one. Uh, just one. But if you just, if just you're good, you can parlay it into like three or four.
0: Yeah. So um, when I was in middle school, my dad thought it would be a good idea to teach my brother and I some responsibility. And while most dads get their kids a dog, my dad got us a cat. Because he, you know, we live out in Gainesville. My dad grew up in Noakesville From a lot of uh, his years. Uh, Worked on the family farm, which was a dairy farm. So I think it was just like teaching me something that he knew. Um, I did not enjoy it so much. (laughs) Uh, You know, because in middle school, living out in Gainesville, and then my middle school was in Manassas. I had to catch the bus at 6 a.m. I had to catch the bus at 6 a.m. I had to feed the calf at 4:30 a.m. So I could like I had to get up and like feed the calf and it was like imitation milk um it was basically like it smelled just like formula and mm-hmm. I say this as I remember when I had twins and it was 4:30 in the morning or 3:30 in the morning and we were doing the the you know the feedings together and I'm making formula and I had the, like that rush memory back to when I was like you know, 11 and, and bottle feeding the calf and just like, but I got to say it was good experience because it trained me to get up at a really odd hour and feed an, and a, feed another living thing to keep it alive. Consistency, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, for me, uh, you know, we talked about fatherhood, what are our strengths? What do we like about it? That's one of the hardest, that was one of the hardest parts about fatherhood for me was that was the first year when they're just, eating and pooping and yeah. I have to wake up in the middle of the night and like feed them. Um, I, I don't, you don't always have to do that, but when you have twins, it becomes a little bit more necessary. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, I guess that would be my story. I got it. I got two stories out of there, by the way.
1: There you go. That's good.
0: <laughs> All right. Let's see. Do I have more questions for you, John? Hold on. Uh, oh, how did you meet Katie? Oh, that's
1: a great story. Going back to going back to restaurants. So we actually met. uh, We're we're like high school sweethearts by uh by the deadline because we met second semester of senior year through some friends, um, and then we coincidentally ended up both going to Virginia Tech. Um, so we were sort of like we went to prom together in high school. Uh, check that box as uh, high school sweethearts, and then went to Virginia Tech, dated all throughout college, and um, you know. I think at some point we decided we should get married. Um, and so we got married right after I graduated. She still had a semester left. And um, yeah, that's, that's all there is. It was just, you know, one of those weird coincidences. I think um, it was,
0: we call those, we call that fate.
1: That's fate. Yeah, no, but it was accentuated by like social media. Cause you know, Facebook was kind of big at the time. So I think I had like just said hi to her at the restaurant and then as everyone did at that time, you would just go friend people that you met because you had to friend everyone. Um, and then we started like just Facebook, um, commenting. I think it wasn't even messaging. It was just like commenting on posts. Um, you know, one point of contention in our marriage is that she's a Chicago bears fan and I'm a green Bay Packers fan. Um, so that was, you know, something we would just kind of rib each other about on Facebook. Um, and, uh, it was just, you know, talking and then, um, I think going to college together and, I, you know, I think one of those things with college relationships from what I've seen, uh, probably any relationship is you either you kind of grow together, you grow apart. And so I think we both kind of grew up together during college, um, enjoyed similar uh, hobbies and things. So that was helpful. Um, she had a car, so she could take me home during the breaks. It was also... <laughs> beneficial that's always, that's always uh,
0: like the struggle of the college kid they got to have the friend with the car if they don't right. have the car <laughs> that's right.
1: um so uh, yeah it was just real kind of run a uh, weird you know um very much happenstance like as i think okay. a lot of situations
0: so in the, in your story you said and we got married how did you propose
1: well that's the other um idiosyncrasy of the relationship i think i as we count i propose like three times because i think like a year in, I kind of realized like I wanted to marry her, but we're still in college. So I was like, oh, we should get married um, as we we're like walking home one night. Um, so that was the first time. And then um, I think a year before I graduated, like the summer before I graduated, we were with, at her parents' house and her mom's like, why don't you two get married already? And so um, that kind of got us thinking about it. So like, and then I asked her father for permission, um, told my parents this is what we're going to do. Um, with the intent to like get married after a, a year. And so that summer I, did, you know, basically asked if we could get married and she said, yes, but I didn't have a ring. Um, and then, so that was the beginning of summer and I was working an internship. And so by the end of the summer, I had saved up enough for a ring. So the third time I proposed, like she was at my, my house in front of my parents with an actual ring. Uh, again, she said, yes. So it was very, very <laughs> certain by that time. Um, <laughs> So it was a it was a process as as many things are.
0: Oh, that's good. Well, at least you finally got her that ring.
1: mm mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all that matters. That's and she
0: I'm consistently talking. said yes. That's also yes. very good. Also but, very good. I mean, yeah. it would have been pretty bad if by the time you got the ring, she was like, nah, I'm out of here.
1: <laughs> that would have been very, very detrimental.
0: That would have been that's like trauma right there. <laughs>
1: um, how did you meet Vanessa?
0: Uh, so we met like we met online, is mm. our is you know, so we both had kids when we met. I was my second marriage, um, her, her next relationship, and um, we met online. We had our first date at Coastal Flats and uh, in Tyson's in uh, Fairfax.
1: Okay,
0: yeah, the cool. yeah, so uh, we hit it off, we had a good night. Uh, I remember. And she remembers, I texted her at the end of the night, like when I got home and I, or I called her and I left her a voicemail because she didn't answer. And I guess like just the way that I spoke on the voicemail, she was just like, this is really weird. And like, not, (laughs) not like weird, like, like that weird, but just like super professional, you know, like, like it was a, like it was a work call. She's like, why did you talk? Why did you leave your voicemail like that? And I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know what to say. You're a girl. This is hard. (laughs) But, uh, you know, we ended up going on a few more dates, and then um, the rest is history.
1: The rest is history. How did you propose?
0: Um, so I took the kids. So Gabriel was eight at the time. Julia and Oliver were two. And I planned a photography session at the battlefield in Manassas. And, um, uh, we got photos done and halfway through the photo session, I got the ring and I got Julia out to carry the ring over to her and propose. So we got some really oh nice gosh, pictures awesome. and, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was, you know, getting, getting my little girl to, to do the work for me, you know, cause I mean, she could have said no to me, but she couldn't have said no to Julia. Nope.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. So.
0: All what right. um, we gotta get some more like standard questions in here. What do the people want to know about candidates? Um, I don't know.
1: What Ivy? What Ivy did you go to, Jeff?
0: <laughs> uh, I did not go to. I did not go to school. Uh, so I barely graduated high school. I did not attend any type of college. Uh, I tell people that I basically didn't read until my thirties, which it's like. I don't know. It's true and it's not true. It's not like I couldn't read, but I had I had barely, I had like maybe three or four books I had managed to get through in my entire life. I had a lot of books that I'd started, you know, maybe got 20 pages in or halfway in or a few chapters here and there and just never finished. Um, but in my mid-30s I started reading pretty heavily and, uh, you know, got down to or I was reading like, I don't know, about a thousand pages a week at one point. Um, and I guess that's my education. So mm-hmm. that's my, that's my, my degree. That's I all they do in college. Anyway. I read that, that one right there this weekend, along with like two other books. Uh, and that was fantastic. Can you see that?
1: Yeah. Congress overwhelmed.
0: Congress overwhelmed. It's
1: are they I heard? It's a cakewalk. You just kind of, you just sit there and fundraise all the time. Nothing, nothing else to do.
0: It, you know, it turns out there's not enough people working in Congress. That mm. whole book, that book talks about it. <laughs> that we need to expand the capacity.
1: Actually, that was an interesting thing in that Senate history thing I was talking about, because like in the 50s and 60s, like senators and I think the representatives used to do a lot of their own work. And then they, they began to feel overwhelmed and then they felt the need for like more staff, more permanent people to hang around and to do the research and the legwork so that they could work more on the policy stuff. And then, you know, now we are where we are today.
0: Well, you know, like, so Congress is supposed to, they're a check to the executive power. Right. So mm-hmm. they're and they're co equal powers. And Congress is supposed to provide oversight to the to the executive. Now, with the congressional uh representation, the Senate and the staff, according to the book, it's about twenty thousand employees now. Per
1: representative?
0: No, twenty thousand total employees for the legislative like branch with staff and all of the committees and everything. So that's according to that book. So I looked up what the staff number for the executive department is now it's like 4 million if you include the military but if you back mm-hmm. out the military it's like 70,000. So now think about that. Congress has to but That's that's support.
1: without contractors and all the other things that go into that too. Like that's probably just like raw federal
0: employees, right? Exactly. And so Congress is supposed to provide oversight to the executive when it has half of the staff they're outmatched completely, mm-hmm. like uncap the house, please. <laughs> my question to you is what in history inspired you to run, to be a candidate?
1: Um. So one of the, one of the, my other favorite facts is that the 4th of July is actually my favorite holiday. Um, so I think, reading American history made me fall more and more in love with kind of what our country is, what we've been given, just kind of really how special it is in human history. You know, the the very fact that um, we have a lot of trust for other people. And so what I thought about, again, being that sort of person who wants to go there and fix people's problems, I, I just see like, there's a lack of, uh, of the same perspective for our, our legislators. Like they just don't, seem to cherish the gifts they're given. And so I wanted to just kind of get involved because uh, I, I think we need more people that appreciate what we have, that realize that there's so much good out of, you know, there's always, like it's a human institution, there's always bad things, always bad history that we can fix. Uh, we have fixed, we're fixing, if you will. Um, but I I really think like, you know, that the United States is a a real gem that, um, can be, you know, it's fragile. Cause if the wrong, if you put the wrong pressures on it and stuff, it will crack, crack, crack and fracture. So I wanted to get involved because I wanted to preserve that, uh, preserve our country for our children, you know, as, as trite as that might sound like that's, that's what it is. But I think it's, it's really more of, um, um, understanding like what, how special we were. And then on the flip side, I think kind of weirdly oddly you know being a computer science major not studying a lot of political philosophy and stuff i too kind of got into reading in my late 20s early 30s um and just sort of dove deep into political theory and again like i don't think people study it as much as you or i do um for the most part like they go to the ivs they go to harvard and but it's more now they're in a network and that's really what you get out of that you don't really get an education anymore and i think um no one, you know, like I love Cicero and stuff. No one reads Cicero, and I think more people need to read Cicero. So it's about, um, you know, spreading my the word of my boy Cicero. It's about trying to teach people, like we do with the Madison Republicans, about governance. Um, and I think being in elected office, it's it's actually leading by example. We're sort of um, people expect you to be a certain way, and you really have to. If what you know, as I believe, like, you've got to have to act differently. Um, and there's a, sort of a decorum that goes with an office. And just kind of, it's fun to kind of live up to that and sort of um be in the swamp, if you will, the local swamp, and um, try to uh, do it, do it the right way. Um So that's what I enjoy the most of being elected official. Uh, that's why perennial candidate feels like at this point. Um, and just like, you know, like, we need more of that more of a historical perspective um and that's what i love about you and and i think more of a a true governing philosophy rather than just sort of doing it for the facebook likes
0: well i mean and that's the thing and that was you know that's one reason that really drove me is like like you said people go to harvard and they become politicians but they don't understand political theory they Mm -hmm. don't study political theory and it's like Or or they
1: might like on a a cursory level that like they read one book or something.
0: Yeah, but like they they don't study political theory, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's concerning, you know, as somebody who does study political theory to realize that the way that the political system works is if you have a whole bunch of people that understand it working inside of it. When you have a whole bunch of people that don't, and maybe a few that do, uh, it, it provides, you know, bad results. And uh, that's why, like, I, you know, I, when we met, I was on board because I was like, hey, this guy's talking Cicero. More people need to talk Cicero, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like we get we get the politicians that run for office because, you know, they they you know how many of people and <laughs> especially on the Republican side actually work in the swamp but run as candidates to drain the swamp. Like, isn't it ironic? Like, I mean, almost everybody, especially like in where we live, like everybody that lives around here works for the federal government, you know, and like in they're some way all, or another, yeah, in, in some way or another, either for a contractor or you know whatever, and they run as like the person that's like the outsider that's going to drain the swamp, and it's just like, and that's why, like again, that one of the reasons I wanted to run is because like I'm just a dad who's just running for office, like. Yeah, I want to drain the swamp and that includes you too, buddy, you know. <laughs> you know, like I want to provide some oversight because most of those federal employees as we mentioned before work for the executive branch mm-hmm. and you know <laughs> and then they're running for Congress and when they get to Congress they'll quickly realize how outmanned they are and how they can't really do anything. Um and if they studied political theory, they might be running on congressional reform as opposed to like the traditional candidate things like, you know.
1: Cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes. Yeah,
0: which which need to be done as well, obviously. But I'm just saying, like, if you really studied your job and you were prepared for your job, you'd realize, like, the biggest pressing problem you have, which is not enough staff. There's not enough people there in Congress. <laughs> Uncapped the house.
1: <laughs> yeah, you just, I mean, you need more real, like, you just need more workers to... Uh, actually get the job done that 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 uh, branch is supposed to get done.
0: Yeah. All right. I feel like that's that's enough for the people, right? Because I want to know. I mean that that's more questions than we got out our debate forum or. That's and, right. And you got longer to answer. You know, like, hey, John, can you tell me the first time that you drove a car? And remember, keep your answers to yes or no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then, after that yes or no, uh you know, some kind of like subjective question like, did you crash you know. hey
0: uh hey John, can you um can you explain the feeling the first time that uh, you got a bad grade on school? and can you please remember to keep your questions to yes or no? Uh, and what was
1: the teacher's name
0: too? <laughs> Uh, Everyone, can everyone just raise
1: their hand if it was Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith?
0: Uh, The teacher's name was Miss McGarvey. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. I asked you to keep your answer to yes or no.
1: (laughs) This is a lightning round because we, someone, someone blew through their 30 seconds multiple times.
0: Um, in the lightning round question, can you explain your foreign policy with both China and Russia? You have 25 seconds. Go. what it's
1: like people that's what it's like
0: that is that's what it's like running for office <laughs> all right well this is a good episode very little politics i hope uh people like the the change of pace on that a little bit of parenting a little bit of getting to know the candidates um maybe we're candidates maybe we're not i don't know john what are we gonna do I don't know, no one's yet. so many kids um all right. Well, anything going on we got a you want to leave the people with before we get out of here, John?
1: I think, you know, find a book that interests you that maybe someone recommended and just start with that. That's a good place to go and if if I may be so bold as to recommend a book, I mean there's a lot of them. Um you could do On Duties by Cicero if you like American history, you could start with What Hath God Wrought. That's a real real good book into sort of a um, calamitous time in our history, but it, you know, it mirrors a lot of what we're going through right now. So, it's a good one. It's the antebellum American period.
0: I, uh, you know, I love the antebellum period, that's one of my favorite mm-hmm. times. There's a couple good ones right there. There's Calhoun, uh, that's a great biography. Um, I read a couple good ones. Um, what was the one I read this weekend? Hold on, I gotta find this real quick because it's worth sharing.
1: So, I think if there's, if there's a dearth in our American history that I need to get over, it's the progressive era and sort of the spoil system. I mean, I've read a little bit of it but not as much as i think i'd like to but.
0: yeah there's a lot to go there so i read uh this weekend can science explain everything by john c lennox it was fascinating i highly recommend it really easy read it's like it's like 120 pages so you could read it in a couple hours um and then and, and was, what
1: is the answer yes or no can science explain everything what do you Wait me round. what do you think <laughs> no <laughs>
0: um and so and then i also read uh i read a a book on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin that was really good. Um, obviously I read, I haven't finished it, but I, I got through a good chunk of Congress Overwhelmed as well. Um, all Fantastics. Although I, this is more for the, like the nerd um, or like the, the guy that studies Congress. I don't, don't go pick that one up if you're not reading that type of stuff regularly because that'll be a little bit more difficult. But if you are reading that stuff regularly, pick it up. <laughs> um, and then- what do we, um, didn't you just read Filthy Rich Politicians?
1: Oh, I did. Loved it. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I found myself going through it. It was a little depressing in some aspects. And then I felt it was a little too like uh, tabloid-ish. Like, oh, look at this person. Look at this person. But I, I think at the end, it gets wrapped up together really neatly. And I think there's some good suggestions in the back for how you can solve a lot of the problems. But you know, it it, it is one of those challenges where, Um, it's a lot of time and effort to run for office, to be in office and it um, having deep pockets can help a lot. And I think that's where we are in a situation where the rich people do tend to run for office. Uh, And that's why we need more average Joe's doing that.
0: Well, what they say in the book, you need to at least $300,000. You need to, if you're Mm -hmm. a candidate for office, you need to raise raise at least $300,000 in your first quarter from your personal network. Before Mm -hmm. anyone else will even talk to you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a wealth barrier. And that is one of the main reasons I ran for office, to let everybody know about it. Because you, as a citizen, have the right to run for office. And you shouldn't have to raise $300,000 from your personal network before the people that control the, the, uh, the offices with their fundraising dollars will let you in the room.
1: Yeah, totally agree.
0: All right. Well, that was great episode, John. Thanks for sharing the books. Hopefully um, go out, pick them up. Um, You can uh, find us on Spotify and Apple. If you can, please leave a review. It helps, you know, get the word out with us. Hit the little star. You get like a little five-star review. Maybe leave a comment. That's always good. Uh, Try to keep it polite and PG and positive. That's always nice. Um, And until next time, peace and love.